Well, thank you for joining me on this live stream on Wednesday, the 16th of December. Now, I am hoping that there is a chat stream forming. I haven't looked yet. Yes, there is. So thank you very much for joining me. And I want to get into the main thrust of this, which is the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, the Outland of FEV, and one customer's experience of Mitsubishi support, which is a bit third rate in my view. We'll get into that in just a sec. I can actually confirm that the audio is working, but I assume you are going to let me know if there's any problems whatsoever. YouTube's telling me it's all good and we appear to be live because I'm getting some comments from you filtering through. So thank you for spending this Wednesday afternoon with me. Now, as usual, I've got this Outlander Fev thing to talk about, and then I will throw the floor open to you and we'll get into your Q&A. Wherever you want to go with that is fine with me. Ask me anything. That's not the same thing as I'm going to answer everything, but we'll see how we go. Got the 2020 FO shirt on again today. Thank you very much, Russ Pabst, for coming up with that concept and making it happen. I appreciate that, mate. Might have to reformulate for 2021, which is just around the corner. And of course, it's only nine more sleeps or something until the fat dude from the North Pole has to deal with all those chimneys. I don't know how he does that. Or it's up there with the Easter Bunny, isn't it, really? That miracle? Anywho, let me know what you want to talk about in the chat. I'll be looking at that while I talk to you here and press these buttons and all of that stuff. But basically, I want to talk to you about a dude you've never heard of until now called Grant Rowan. And he has owned a Mitsubishi Outlander Fev since November 2016. And it's worth mentioning that in the past couple of months, I drove the Outlander Fev Again, because uh, Mitsubishi rang up and said words to the effect of, we've upgraded the suspension. It's got this Bilstein suspension pack now, and we think it's improved things substantially. And I'd have to say it has. The Outlander Fev, of course, is a pretty old product now. It's, it's kind of aging, and it feels a little bit that way when you drive it. And certainly there is a great deal of complexity in vehicles like that. And it's one of their early efforts at that technology. So we've got to bear all that in mind as well. But we've had this new version of consumer law for about 10 years now. In fact, on the 1st of January next year, 2021, just whatever it is, half a month away or something, that's going to be the 10th anniversary of our new consumer laws. And we kind of need to bear that in mind as well, I think, because 10 years is long enough to get match fit on how this all works. So anyway, Russ gives me the guff about his ownership. He's owned it since November of 2016. So it's just had its fourth birthday. And he says the advertised pure electric mode distance range. So with the FEV, you can operate it in EV only mode and it can go 50Ks. At least that's what Mitsubishi said about that at the time, right? And he goes on to say that the advertised fuel consumption was 1.9 litres per 100, which is based on that operation in EV mode. Okay? And the vehicle, he said, came with a five-year warranty and an eight-year warranty on the traction battery pack. And he's put 88,000 Ks on it in four years, so he drives it a little bit more than usual, which makes sense for a hybrid because you pay extra for it. And if you drive it a lot, it's easier to make an economic rationalism claim for paying that premium up front and recouping it in the distance that you drive in the future. If you only drive a few thousand Ks a year, it's going to take geologic 
with time to pay for itself. But if you drive a lot, as uh, Mr. Rowan does, then, hey, fair enough. Okay, so he says that after 88,000 kilometres on the Odo and four years of ownership, the maximum distance he can travel in pure EV mode is 22 kilometres. So that's a reduction to 44% of the initial claimed capacity, right? Which is a substantial reduction in that time. I think you'd agree. He said, I took the vehicle to the dealership and they ran the diagnostics on the battery and they sent the data to Mitsubishi and the result was that my battery pack had degraded to 45%. On the Mitsubishi website from 2016, under the frequently asked questions part about the fare, he said, it states that the degradation is, quote, expected to be no more than 20% over the life of the vehicle. Now, I don't know what that means. What is the life of the vehicle? I guess it's until it goes poopy in its trousers or until it's in that state and economically irrational to repair. Who knows? But certainly I think he's well within the life of the vehicle at 88,000 Ks and four years down the track. And I don't think there'd be much dispute among reasonable people on that issue. So, that seems like a great deal more degradation than he was promised up front to me. He says, my vehicle's nowhere near the end of the life. In fact, it's still under the five and eight year warranty periods. Mitsubishi refuses to acknowledge that the advanced degradation of my battery is a fault, but they say it's natural degradation. Based on a current degradation, by the time I hit the eight-year warranty period for the battery, my battery will only have approximately 10% capacity. This is 90% degradation, or it means this will be 90% degradation. Far from the promised 20%, and not to mention the fact that I cannot achieve the quoted 1.9 litre per 100 kilometres. In fact, it's in the ballpark of four litres per 100, which, let's face it, for a vehicle that big, Still pretty good, I'd have to say. He says that this is false advertising. I'm not sure it's actually false advertising, but it certainly might be a breach of some aspect of consumer law. We'll get into that in just a second. He said they've lied about the capabilities of the vehicle. And I'd suggest that that's probably not the case either because a lie is when somebody at the time of expressing a view intends intentionally goes out to misrepresent either the truth or what they, that what they perceive the truth to be, right? And I don't think that qualifies as a lie. It's just a product that has ultimately failed to live up to the claims made about it. And I actually have those claims here, but I'll just figure out, I'll just get to the end of Russ's thing. He says, uh, they've lied about the capabilities of the vehicle, or in fact, let's just say that the vehicle has not lived up to the statements made about its capability and longevity, and they should make good on the advertised degradation and fuel economy. I get that. The advertised, at least the promised degradation, seems a lot higher. He says, I have submitted a complaint to the ACCC, so I will have to wait and see what the outcome is from that. And the first point I would say about that is, it's fine to make representations about misconduct to the ACCC. That's what they're there for. But as a consumer, you need to realise that the ACCC does not act for individuals. That is not their function and you will not get a resolution of your issue from the ACCC because they just don't exist for that purpose. He says, I've attached my correspondence with Mitsushiti, unquote. Uh, feel free to use this content on your YouTube channel if you would like to. 
And yeah, I would like to because this is a worthwhile topic for discussion about the FEV generally, the Outlander FEV, and about the longevity of these kinds of products, early adoption and consumer law and warranty and how this all works. And there's a broader application of this principle beyond just the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, all right? I've got the correspondence here. It's, you know, several pages of toing and froing by email from Mitsubishi Customer Relations and Mr. Rowan, okay? But certainly I've got this FAQ piece right here, what Mitsubishi said about the product when it was uh, purchased by Mr. Rowan in 2016. And it says that, Will I need to replace the FEV's drive battery pack? And they say that the battery is not a service item which is expected to need replacement during the vehicle's life and replacement is not included in the FEV's maintenance schedule. There will be some natural degradation of the lithium-ion battery chemistry over the life of the vehicle, which could lead to a small reduction in the pure EV range. This is expected to be no more than 20% and, of course, hybrid driving range extension is not affected. Naturally, in the event of warrantable failure, the battery will be replaced at no cost to the customer. They go on, blah, blah, blah. All right. Now, I'd say there's a major discrepancy between 20% expected degradation over the life of the vehicle and 45% degradation, which is what Mr. Rowan was told by Mitsubishi when he submitted his vehicle for examination. And they do have rather a long email here, and I won't bore you with all of that, but basically Mitsubishi says, as they go on to explain, okay, that there are two main types of degradation, which would be cyclic degradation, which is degradation due to discharge and charge cycles, and also calendar degradation, which is degradation due to time. And they say that factors that accelerate cyclic degradation are high discharge rates and charge rates, and high energy demands at high and low battery state of charge, and to complete battery discharge situations, right? So there are factors that alter the amount of cyclic degradation and the factors that accelerate calendar degradation are the amount of time in service, high ambient temperatures in storage when the vehicle's not in use and high battery state of charge when in storage. All right. There doesn't seem to have been too much storage in Mr. Rowan's case because he's driven essentially 22,000 kilometres a year. So that implies, at least to me, that there's been regular use of that vehicle. Mitsubishi goes on to conclude, after all of this explanation about battery state of charge, blah, 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 and the degradation, they say, as the cause of concern is not considered a manufacturing defect, replacement of the battery is not covered under the terms and conditions of the manufacturer's warranty. And that's where I'm going to leave you uh, from the point of view of quoting all of this stuff, because it's where my major problem with this situation arises, okay? There's more than just a warranty at play here. There's also this monolith of Australian consumer law, which is more powerful than warranty because you get it automatically and it's legislated, okay? A warranty is really just some essentially airy-fairy promise that the manufacturer makes to you about looking after you for some period of time that they offer you to do this, but 
It's completely separate from consumer law, the protections of which you get automatically. And this may not be a fault at all with the battery. It may be, as Mitsubishi says, natural degradation. But they did make something that I would infer is a promise about expected battery degradation targeting 20% in the ballpark of 20% over, quote-unquote, the life of the vehicle, all right? And there's this thing in consumer law, which is called the acceptable quality guarantee. It's part of the consumer guarantees. And if you want to know more about that, just go to Google and type in the following search term, ACCC consumer guarantees. Anyway, the guarantee of acceptable quality says that goods that you buy must match the promises made about them by the consumer, by the manufacturer, okay, by the seller, okay. And if the manufacturer says that it's expected that twenty percent degradation over the life of the vehicle is where you're going to be, and you've just used the vehicle like a normal vehicle, like you've just driven it and you've plugged it in and recharged it occasionally, and you want to lunch off that quote unquote free. 50 k's of range, then there's a massive difference between an expectation of 20% degradation over the life of the vehicle and in fact being at 45% degradation just four years in. So if I was Mr. Rowan and I was essentially being brushed by a car company on the basis of, well, that's not warrantable because it's just normal degradation, I'd suggest, well, I'm not asking for a warranty claim. I'm asking for a remedy under Australian consumer law because your product has failed to meet the guarantee of acceptable quality, which is legislated. And to me, that seems like a far more powerful approach than asking them for consideration under the terms and conditions of an airy-fairy promise that is arbitrarily made and absolutely not required under the law. So that's how I'd proceed with that if I was Mr. Rowan. And furthermore, I'd suggest that car companies, a lot of car companies anyway, some car companies are fantastic. And hey, I am a Mitsubishi supporter in more ways than one. I say Pajero Sport is a damn good vehicle. I say the Triton is a damn good vehicle, and I must really think that because six months or five months ago now, I put my own 50 grand on the line and drove away in a Triton GSR Ute, which I've been quite happy with. It's it's fine. I haven't driven it much because 2020, right? But to the extent that I have driven it, it's been on the highway, it's been around the burbs, it behaves like a Ute, and the value proposition is awesome. And I'm a believer in the brand and I've put my money where my mouth is, okay? So it's not like I have an axe to grind with Mitsubishi, but I think many car companies have not evolved to the new standards of consumer law and they've had 10 friggin' years to get on the front foot. So just to brush you from what is apparently a legitimate concern, and furthermore, I'd go on to say that, you know, Mr. Rowan doesn't appear to be a technical moron, okay, because he's a director of a crowd called Reflex On-Site Com Computing, and he's also signed up to a thing called the... Uh, Energex, battery, whatever. I'm just getting to the right page. I should have put them down in order, shouldn't I, really? <laughs> he, um, he goes on to say, and I will find it. 
or I will die in the attempt. He says, back in July of 2020, I signed up for the Energex EV Smart Charge Research Program. He's got a participant ID in that, and I've noticed my range and health of, uh, state of health of my battery dropped to 50%. See attached data snapshot, okay? And so he does seem to be not operating from a point of view of abject technical ignorance, right? I'd suggest that these companies need to stop just falling back on warranty and say, well, what are our legal obligations here in relation to consumer law? And also, what are our ethical obligations in relation to customer expectations? And what happens to us when this kind of uh, event, when this kind of brush, I'd, I'd categorise Mitsubishi's response as a brush, okay? He's been brushed. And I would therefore say that if that gets out, it reflects negatively on the brand. And I'm really trying uh, not to be unfair when it comes to Mitsubishi's response. I'm sure they had their reasons and I'm sure they've got their policies. But it seems to me that with these emerging vehicle technologies, there needs to be even greater support for early adopters, lest there be a much more substantial roadblock to commercial success in the future. And I think it's very um, unfortunate that this event has come to light just in sort of the week, I think it is, where Mitsubishi is uh, releasing details of its all-new Outlander. I'd rather be able to say that I think whichever Outlander you buy, you'll be getting outstanding customer support from Mitsubishi. But it seems to me that this is more of a brush than a real attempt to provide support. And I think if you put yourself in Mr. Rowan's shoes, you would be extremely unimpressed that your range in just four years and 88,000 kilometres of driving had dropped to, let's call it, roughly half of what was originally promised. And the degradation of your battery pack was roughly double what Mitsubishi promised by way of implication that you would be likely to expect over the life of the vehicle in just four short years. So I'd love to know if you've had an experience with the Mitsubishi Outlander FEV and what that's been. Are you experiencing that kind of degradation? Has Mitsubishi looked after you? Have you been brushed with a similar thing? Is it word for word exactly the same response or What's your experience of Mitsubishi support been generally? Because I'd have to say that in general, the Mitsubishi products that I'm familiar with have been reliable and I don't get many complaints about Mitsubishis from customers, but I just think there needs to be philosophical evolution, not just at Mitsubishi, but in many customer relations departments of many car makers to move from warranty compliance as sort of the gold standard of how we're going to support people and at least pay homage to the existence of Australian consumer law on the eve of its 10th birthday. And more than that, just think about the value of copping a little bit of financial impost on the chin at this point by virtue of it being a marketing initiative and what that customer will say about you if they get a-grade support from you. So with that, I'll leave the floor over to you and I'll be very interested to see what you say and uh, also any questions you've got from me now of not necessarily just about this kind of uh, vehicle, but also if you've got any questions in the automotive domain generally. And I would say that today is one of those perfect 
Sydney days from hell, okay? So if you see me sitting here blowing like a pig, it's because it's it's only 27 degrees today, right? But it's about, well, just out there on the outside of the fat cave under palatial chateau Shitsville here in the bush, the, um, the temperature's only about 27 degrees, but it's 10 trillion percent humidity and in here it's much more balmy it's only about 25 and it's only you know, a billion percent humidity and every metal surface in the fat cave is wet in fact i was going to go live at 2 p.m and i had to go live at 2 30 because i had to stand here in this fine domicile holding a hairdryer on the camera to get all of the condensation out of the inside of the the sensor of the lens and this took me essentially another 20 minutes and i know you're going to find it ridiculous that someone such as me has a hair dryer but essentially it's just there for <laughs> for camera dehumidification if that's a word so anyway let's have a look at some of these uh comments from you brenton l says had a lexus hybrid Never had a problem, but a bit concerned about battery life and ongoing costs have gone back to non, non-fuel. <laughs> and uh, did I make the right decision? Well, I'm not familiar with a non-fuel car, but please send me details, Brendan, because I think everyone in the Western world wants a non-fuel car. Any car that runs on non-fuel, I'm up for that. Um, Tobias Gregory now says, been pouring rain here just over the border from Canberra. Feels like Darwin. Yeah, it certainly does. We're in the middle of this cyclonic depression. It's like being in a microwave oven in Dubai. (laughs) Like being in a microwave oven inside a blast furnace inside the sun. Uh, Brent Nell says, uh, should be here in SA 25 degrees C, 0% humidity. Well, don't tease me, baby. I'll take some of that. Just uh, email me some of that 0% humidity. It would be fine. Bez says, looks like Mitzi wants to go the same route as Holden. I honestly think there's a problem with some Japanese car makers, and it's been this way since the global financial crisis because that was like a plutonium implosion bomb for them. It really was. They, they didn't know what to do about the GFC, and it was a springboard, such a springboard for the Koreans. Hyundai and Kia, Hyundai in particular, just grabbed the GFC and went, okay, we're going to run with that, because they still had, at that stage, back in 2007 or whatever, they still had that cheap and cheerful thing going on. They weren't pretending to be premium at that point. I'm not suggesting they're pretending to be premium now. They are premium now, but They had to transition from cheap and cheerful to premium. And at the time of the GFC, well, that was the time to be cheap and cheerful because that's when people were looking for new cars that were cheap and cheerful. And it so hurt the Japanese because they'd been riding on this crest where they were the best quality cars in the world and they were still mainstream and they were affordable sort of thing. And they had to just rip everything out of the budget and they took everything away from R&D and racing and promotion and they just lost their way. Like, think about Honda at in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Honda was so awesome and look where they are now. And Nissan, same sort of thing. They had such quality cars in the late 90s and early 2000s and they are operating as a shadow of the for, their former selves, aren't they? You know, to me, this is amazing and you know, the fact that Hyundai and Kia are routinely top 10 car makers by sales here in Australia is just 
incredible. And I did not predict that. I certainly did not predict that 10 years ago. I kind of predicted the demise of Holden and local manufacturing, but I never... I never stood up in 2011 or something and said, and Hyundai and Kia are going to be top 10 car makers because I frankly didn't see that. And yet here we are. So yeah, the the, the Japanese thing, it is surprising to me. Neil Aynow says, uh, John, thoughts on best car between these Kia Seltos Mazda uh, CX-30, I think you mean, versus Hyundai Tucson. Well, Kia Seltos is an interesting car to me because if you're a really mundane driver and you can't tell the difference between power plants and things of that nature, then maybe the two-litre front-drive CVT Seltos is okay, but I find that really mediocre, you know? And then when you look at the 1.6 turbo all-wheel drive Seltos, it's awesome. It's really responsive. And what a difference the powertrain makes in my view. You know, one of the things I noticed about that two-liter CVT Seltos in particular is that if you like engaging driving and you pick the apex of the bend and you get your speed right and you want to start feeding power on when you clip the apex, right, and just unwind the steering and flow, right, you're in that flow state like you get in in so many activities that are physical and mental at the same time. Well, it's really difficult to do that in the two-litre CVT Seltos because there's this massive time lag between when you press on the accelerator and when the actuators inside the CVT get the belts in the right spot to start applying the power. And in fact, you have to train yourself to pick where you want to start squeezing the throttle and then squeeze the throttle substantially earlier, like two seconds earlier, which doesn't sound like a long time, but it's a long time to build a delay like that into the process. And yet, in the 1.6 DCT Seltos with all-wheel drive in the same situation, it's awesome because it's in the right gear and throttle response is, as expected, you know, reasonably instantaneous. Now, as for the other two, uh, CX-30 is kind of okay. I, I haven't driven it, but I've read the reviews. It's, it's a Mazda 3 on stilts with ground clearance, whatever. It's, it represents to Mazda 3, which I rate as an excellent car, uh, what XV in the Subaru range represents to Impreza Hatch. It's exactly the same thing, just with ground clearance. So nothing wrong with CX-30, subject to me driving it and discovering that un I disagree with every review I've ever read. Who has time when you're a one-man band, right? So CX-3, tick of approval. On Tucson, okay, like I've been a fan of Tucson for many years now, but it's an aging product and it's set for replacement. In fact, I've got a video on the channel, which is a sneak peek, bit of a prick tease, if you like, of the new Tucson. And it's so much better in every respect that if you decided you wanted a Tucson, my strong advice is wait, because the new one is so much better that you will invariably kick yourself because you didn't wait whatever it's going to be, like six months or something, subject to the prevarications of the pandemic, okay? So that's where I would place all of them. So if it's a Tucson thing, wait. If it's a Seltos, then get the 1.6 if you enjoy driving. CX-30 is okay. I, I'd suggest in the Mazda range, the bigger engine, always the best choice, okay? And the premium spec levels are pretty nice too. Mazda does nice polish, okay? They're, they're polished. And 
Kia, of course, its big trick is the seven-year warranty. And I know I've just done everything possible to disparage warranty and say it's kind of a sideshow, which it is, but it's a comfort to many people to have that two years longer than average warranty with the Kia. So let us move on at this point. Coming up for three o'clock here in the infinitely humid knee of Sid, if you're watching live. Now, uh, Victor Bitter says, hey, John. I was at a red light the other day and there was a NRMA van beside me. Old mate had his head in his hands and bawling his eyes out, obviously on his way to a major breakdown. Yeah, that's confronting, isn't it? You know, one of the things I, I notice about this year is the amount of pressure it places on people, you know, and that's not to be... Um, that's not to be made fun of, I don't think. You know, you, you can't make fun of that. It's been an extremely confronting year for some people and it continues to be confronting. Like, imagine if you'd spent all of that time on lockdown and, you know, your relationship had down, broken down or you've lost your job, you've lost your house, you've lost your business, you know. These things are extremely serious, which is why I, I find it so disgusting when I see uh, taxpayer-funded advertisements about what a great job the government's doing getting the economy back on track. I think there should be a great deal more empathy in the domain of regulation for people who have actually suffered as a consequence of the pandemic. And I know it hasn't been everyone, and I, everybody's got different breaking points. And all I can say is you should not let these things get completely on top of you. And if you do feel they are, then um, Lifeline is the way to go in Australia. And the number uh, 13 11 14, I think, for Lifeline from memory. It's been a while since I uh, recommended them. Let's just, uh, let's just check. 13 11 14 for Lifeline. If you're feeling particularly confronted by your situation, it's probably not as bad as you think. And it's easy to get overwhelmed. And the dudes at Lifeline on 13, 11, 14 can really help. And it, it, there's no shame in letting, you know, everything get on top of you because it's been the most challenging year I can remember. And it's just given so much on so many different levels. Like I remember 12 months ago now, every day when I woke up, the friggin' sky was burnt orange because of the fires. And I thought, well, how much worse can this get? And then three months later, when the sky was still burnt orange and we had this unprecedented destruction of native habitat and unprecedented death of wildlife, and it was just tremendously confronting. And so many people had lost their houses. And, you know, there was so much misinformation being touted about the, the severity of the fire event. I thought, you know, I'm glad the fire season's over. At least we can all have a rest now. Like we can all relax from that. And look what happened. You know, Jesus. So without wanting to dwell on the negatives, and I sincerely hope 2021 is better, much better. If you are confronted by your situation right now, you, maybe you can't do all the things that you want to do for your family at Christmas time because it's just been a hell of a year. And Christmas is great, right? Christmas is great for many people because you get a break and you can go to the beach and you can kick back and you can drink and eat more than you normally would and all of that stuff. It's great except if it's not great, right? If you've just you know, left your family because your relationship's broken down and you're completely isolated and you don't have a job and you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. Like Christmas fair income sucks if you're in that position. 
It's one of the reasons why, for years, when I was a uh, host on Radio 2UE here in Sydney, I used to volunteer for breakfast on uh, Christmas. So I'd get up at 2 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day and host uh, breakfast, which is confronting because breakfast is friggin' hard to to panel. And I didn't want to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I certainly didn't do it to say ho, ho, friggin' ho to all of Sydney. I did it for all the poor bastards who were suffering because they'd for whatever reason, like just outlined, or maybe there was a, a a widow or a widower out there who just lost their lifelong partner, and this was their first friggin' Christmas without them, or some poor bastard who'd separated from his family and he's sitting there on his complete lonesome in some shitty accommodation, which is typical in that situation, absolutely isolated from his children and the rest of his family, bit of a pariah, sitting there isolated in that situation. So my heart goes out to you if you're in that situation like that repair dude, because he's meeting people all day long on their worst day and that could get to you, you know, and who knows what he's just been to and what his situation was. But, you know, emergency services people are like this too. They, they spend all day meeting people on the worst day of their lives, don't they? Uh, and I know that's all been a bit sobering, but that's kind of how life is, isn't it? And I just say that one day, uh, many years ago, when I interviewed uh, the NRMA Patrolman of the Year for, I think it was Motor Magazine. He told me some of the funniest stories. And that there's a there's a huge difference. Like he told me about one guy who obviously hadn't had his car serviced in you know geologic time and it threw a rod and the, the rod had punched a hole in the side of the engine block and he had all these packages in the back and he's kind of saying to the dude who, who turned up from the NRMA, um, so when can you get me back on the road, mate? <laughs> and... Um, I don't think he grasped the full gravity of his situation. But number one with a bullet and not to be a sexist bastard at all, I can see how this would happen, is a woman at about 2.45pm on a school day. She's a mum, okay? And she's got young kids to pick up and the car is not accessible, okay? She's locked the friggin' keys in the car at a Westfield shopping mall, okay? And... She's run off to, to the help point. She's rung the NRMA on a mobile. Thank Christ the handbag wasn't in the car. Anyway, she stays at the help point. The NRMA dude turns up and she's like, I've got to get my kids. I've only got 10 minutes. I've got to get to the school. It's 15 minutes away. I've got to teleport, blah, blah, blah. She's on the cusp of hysteria. Okay, and I get that because to mothers, there is such an imperative never to fail the kids, right? Because they've got to be the protector when... The dude is away, you know, hunting or gathering or whatever, okay, biologically, evolutionarily. Anywho, she jumps in the van with NRMA hero dude and they get to the car and he looks at the problem and she's, how long is this going to take? And he goes, 10 seconds, I'll have you going again. And he reaches in through the open driver's window, retrieves the keys from the ignition switch <laughs> and hands them to her. So she's locked the car, the, the car is locked, but the window's wide open. And she hasn't realized it, which I just think highlights the, 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 the extreme variation in situations that all of these people like NRMA service dudes and, you know, ambos and fireys and police officers, they, 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 they reach this incredible cross section of humanity. And sometimes it's just this so terrible. And at other times it must just be hilarious and things in between, you know, incredible black humour and things like that. Anyway, let's move on. Thanks, Victor. Good on you, mate. Uh, Tamara, oh, let me just check that. Tamian Jones says, you're not going to like this, John. Okay. 
but I'm going to buy a Skoda Suburb Scout Wagon. Yes, so much better than an SUV in every way. And to that, Temian, I would suggest that I think Skodas drive really well, and I get that whole sort of minimalist, Euro-chic styling thing they've got going on. My only problem with Volkswagen Group product is the inherent poor reliability that my experience tells me that you're likely to be exposing yourself to. It's a risk thing. And also the poor support that you are likely to receive, even if you deserve better support here in Australia. But if you love a car and you're prepared to accept the reality, all of the tangibles, and you're not deceiving yourself about that, then knock yourself out, dude. Like, I hope you enjoy it. So, uh, Tone now says, G'day, Tone. With the uh, UK and Japan both proposing a ban on ice-powered vehicles from 2030, what knock-on effects do you see for Australia? Losing two major right-hand drive markets will probably reduce ice-powered choices, in my humble opinion. Yeah, maybe. I, like, I'd love to be able to predict uh, 10 years into the future, but I don't know whether this ban on internal combustion-powered vehicles will actually happen because although they are mandating that, I don't know if it's going to be tangibly possible to make that happen. So let's just see first and then let's all just realise that these incredible markets elsewhere that still exist and let's not forget Japan is not one of those markets banning internal combustion engines. So... With Japan still making internal combustion cars, I don't see a way that they could ever not build left-hand drive. And there may be some impacts on uh, right-hand drive production, but I see that more coming from America because we're already seeing North American manufacturers getting out of right-hand drive production. So there's that. Uh, but, you know, watch this space. I, I can't really predict it. I'd love to be able to predict it, but I just can't. Peter Ossie now says, I didn't hear all the details about the FEV, but had bought a Magna and in 2007 Lancer, both secondhand but under warranty, and Mitsubishi replaced all dodgy bits with no fuss at, uh, at John H. Perth too. So it's disappointing to hear that. Yeah, I agree, Peter, it is. And my uh, default position on Mitsubishi support is it's pretty good. And I don't know why they've taken this particular stance on the FEV battery degradation, whether that's an outlier or whether it's emblematic of a more uh, policy-related deal. Anyway, if you joined the stream late, the deal was there's an owner uh, who bought uh, a FEV new in November 2016 and it suffered 45%, I think it was, degradation in the battery in the four years he's owned it, over 88,000 kilometres of driving. So uh, Mitsubishi's position was that that's just normal degradation, despite saying in their frequently asked question marketing material uh, prior to sale that they expected the degradation of the battery to be 20% over the life of the vehicle, whatever that is. So there's that. Now, let us move on to other questions. Chris Nottle now. I recognize that name. G'day, Chris, and thanks for joining us on the live stream. Impressive set of tools back there. You Are you weekend warrior with the wrench, a Saturday screw with the impact driver? If so, what's the go-to hobby, or are they all show and no go? Yes. Well, I used to be much keener on the tools than I am, but mainly I've just done you know routine maintenance and kept the house afloat and things of that nature. I spent a lot of time on the tools when I was training as an engineer and I still enjoy making swarf, you know, welding and doing all of that kind of stuff. But um, 
I don't have a particular hobby per se, but, you know, I've got a compressor just over here and I've got the retractable reel for the um, air and I fill the tyres up routinely. It stretches outside the fat cave, so that's nice. And I'm a bit of a stickler for tyre presses. I've got my power bandsaw here and a belt grinder. You've seen the drill press. And to me, having the right tool for the job is not a matter of like, let's just use them 24-7, but it's so much better than just trying to scrape by and improvise with a shit set of tools. So when I upgraded the Fat Cave to a studio environment, I also got rid of a few shitty tools and got some new ones. But many of the tools you can see back there are pretty old and crappy. You know, some of those hammers I've had for more than 20 years and they look like I've had them for more than 20 years and plenty of the other tools are pretty old as well. But it really, once you've had your hands on the tools and you've made plenty of swarf and you've undone plenty of bolts, particularly rusted up bastard bolts that really don't want to let go, it's kind of gut-wrenching and depressing to have to have just a, a mundane, adequate set of crap tools. So I'm a bit of a tool snob, I guess. You know, I like having the right tool, even if I don't use them all that often. But I might use them more often than you might suggest. So they're certainly not there just to look at. But they do form a... Uh, philosophically representative studio background, I guess you'd say. Uh, Matt Weatherall now says, I've got solar panels at home, hoping to eventually buy an electric car, but the in-between I've bought uh, a lot a lot over a hybrid. I, I thought, uh, sorry, I thought a lot over a hybrid. Your recent videos have somewhat deterred me. Look, I think there's a case for hybrids, okay? But I can only operate in the domain of rationalism and facts and people don't make just rational fact kind of decisions on cars right but I can't place myself in the subjective domain of chocolate versus friggin strawberry because objectively like on like um epistemically objectively it's they're both the same <laughs> right? It's only when you get into this domain of sort of epistemic subjectivity that there's a difference between chocolate and strawberry. That's all down to the observer. It's observer relevant, right? So you might love the idea of a hybrid. You might fantasize about that. It might say to you on an emotional level, I'm doing the right thing. And if that's you, then friggin' knock yourself out and go out and buy a hybrid, okay? But if it's not, okay, and you really are rational about this kind of thing, then I'd suggest the case for hybrid is if you drive for Uber or you drive a taxi or you're some sort of long distance driver annually. Okay, you drive long distances annually in an urban environment because then hybrids make rational sense, like they make ontological sense, if you like, like objective sense. If you just want a hybrid, then that's fine. Now, I'll just go over this uh, again. Matt's just popped up here again. He said, but would you consider a FEV purchase better value with solar panels charging uh, to cover pure EV with shorter trips than hybrid for long trips? Or am I just better going internal combustion for the foreseeable future? Depends what you mean by better. You know, you can certainly, if you've got the solar panels, then you could devote them to charging your FEV if the FEV is at home when the sun's shining. So there's that, okay? And you can, there's no correct answer here or incorrect answer, but I'd suggest that rather than buy a FEV, maybe it's a better idea to get yourself a battery because then you can run appliances at home when the sun's not shining, right? And battery accumulation or even some sort of heat pump. You know, you might heat the pool if you've got a pool or whatever. 
there are uses that you can put your solar array to that will reduce carbon dioxide output, basically. And if you think that's a virtuous thing to do, and personally I think it is, if you're actually doing that, then maybe that's good. And there's not only one correct answer here, right? If you find a solution that works for you and you can justify it, then go with that. Because there's no one right answer and everything's everything else is wrong. This issue, hate those bugs, this issue is uh, is deeply nuanced, right? And you have to find a solution, Matt, that is right for you. But it sounds to me like you're on the right track and at least you're making rational inquiries before being pulled by your heart in a particular direction. So there's that. Matty D says, the Olight Baton Pro is on sale for 81 bucks tonight. It's so awesome, 100% recommended. Yeah, look, I have been doing a fair bit of promotion of Olight torches over the past, and I've got one at hand here. Yeah, I do, and they're charging thing, they're charging thing. They're magnet-obsessed, the dudes at Olight. They're really good at it, but just check this out. If this isn't so clever, I don't know what is. How good is that, right? That's all you've got to do, USB uh, type, whatever they call that, A on this end, and brilliant magnetic clip. This one, the Warrior X, incidentally, is uh, it's got this massive parabolic reflector on the front of it, and... It's really good for long distance pencil beam. Like this thing is almost a laser. You know what I mean? Like it's so bright at distance and that's what it's designed to do. So something like the Warrior X would be excellent from my point of view if, you, if you've got a boat and you need to look at the shore and it's 500 metres away and you need to locate a particular thing, you know, or if you're maybe hunting, you know, or even just spotlighting out in the boonies, then a torch like this where there's not a great deal of beam dispersal. But if you had a torch beside the bed that you wanted to use for, you know, identifying a strange noise, something that goes bump in the backyard in the middle of the night, then I wouldn't use a torch like this. I'd use something more like uh, the Warrior Mini or the M2R Pro or the Baton recommended by uh, Matty D because in that situation, they're still bright. And they've got more modes, but they're more beam dispersal as well. So they're much more practical from the point of view of searching and identifying and, if necessary, you know, deterring an attack upon yourself or others at those sort of self-defense range distances, which are like, I don't know, 50, 50 meters or less. Certainly, certainly the pencil laser beam of this Warrior X is, is much more that absolute long distance searching thing. You know, if you're, I don't know, if, if I was, um, if I was a, a light aircraft pilot or something like that, and I was worried about, uh, you know, maybe having to make an emergency landing in a remote place and I could just see a spider climbing up the front of that friggin' lens. I hate that. I love nature. I love nature in 100%, 100 billion percent humidity in Sydney. Anyway, that's what I think about the torches. Um, incidentally, I do get a lot of people in the comments uh, telling me that they think that I'm a sellout because I have a commercial relationship with Olight. Well, what Olight do is they pay me a commission based on sales, okay? I get a small commission if you use my link, which is in some of those videos. And if I remember, I'll put one on this video as well, but I'm not feral for that. What I am is I'm feral for good products, okay? I'm feral for good products that are well-made and good investments over time, designed to last for years. Like this thing will resist a 1.5 meter drop onto a hard surface and it's waterproof to two meters. And for the same reason, I'm a sucker for 
you know, my, um, I think I've got it here. I, ha- I do. I hardly ever leave home without it. I'm a sucker for, for a good Leatherman, you know? And I've had one Leatherman fail in like, I don't know, 25 years of Leatherman ownership. And I own several of them and I, I, I make them mission specific, if you like. I've got this one here that's just right for sort of what I'd classify as everyday carry. It's their latest design. All the tools are accessible on the outside. You can deploy them if necessary, one-handed, Right. And the beauty of that is, of course, often you're holding on to something with one hand and you need a screwdriver or a blade. You've got to cut something, whatever. Um, and I've had one failure and all I wanted was the part, the little spring that would have made it right. They just sent me a new one. I went, dudes, that's awesome. So I'm just the same as I am with cars, which is I recommend good products with good support. I'm the same with cars as I am with all other products. You know, when I find a product that I really like, that I think is a win, I don't hesitate to use it. I like uh, Panasonic cameras because they, they've done a great job. I've used GH5s and GH5Ss for some time. And I also use Sonys as well. And they've done a great job. And they've all been tremendously reliable. I haven't got any issues with reliability or, and I've never used the support as a result from both Panasonic and and Sony. We're shooting on a $7,000 Panasonic broadcast camera now that I've had for, I don't know, five years or something, and it hasn't missed a beat. And I flamed it for 30 minutes with a hairdryer on full to get the condensation out of the inside of it here in the fat cave where it sits permanently set up in this just uplifting palatial environment, okay? And for this reason, for the fact that I use these products and they've been great, then I don't have a problem effusively supporting them. And if freaking Leatherman reach out to me and say, hey, we notice that you love Leatherman. How about we give you a code and you'll get a, a kickback on some of the sales? I'm going to go, yeah, okay, great, thanks. And if Panasonic want to do that or Sony, unlikely, then I'm going to say, yeah, great, dudes, on it fantastic and I'll mention it to you and if you want to jump that way great but I make this solemn promise to you now which is that I will never never recommend a product to you just because there's an urn in it for me okay and as evidence because some of you are uh, tremendously uncharitable in the comments about things like this and to you if that is you I'd say piss off you know go and annoy someone else I don't care I don't care what you think the um because the minute as a creator you start caring what somebody uncharitable thinks, uh, you, you make yourself their bitch. And I hate that. I will not be someone's bitch like that, you know. The evidence, if you're interested in interrogating it, is that I don't recommend Mercedes-Benz. And if you think that I couldn't make a shitload out of recommending Mercedes-Benz because there's a lot of profit in a Mercedes-Benz sale generally, particularly a good one like a C63S or something of that nature – I could make a shitload out of that and I could get uh, many uh, inquiries about Mercedes-Benzes. I could transmit them to my team who uh, fulfill the uh, negotiation part of the, uh, the, the brokerage and, you know, we'd make a fair bit of money out of that. But ethically, I won't go there because I've seen firsthand how that company treats many customers and I don't agree with it. I think it's poor. Let's, let's just say, let's be... Uh, on the eve of Christmas, let's be polite about it. I think they treat them poorly in many cases. So 
I recommend products I've got faith in. And that, that, that's just where I am on that, okay? And if, if you think I'm a sellout as a result of my uh, recent association with Olight, then that's a matter for you. But don't for a moment delude yourself into thinking I care that you formed this view because that would be an erroneous conclusion. Let's move on. Uh, Chris Noddle again is uh, just there on the uh, on the top of the chat feed. He says, what are your thoughts on everybody getting fizzed up over Toyota killing off the V8 and the 200 series? Surely they'd only replace it with a more powerful unit uh, given the target market. Now, the thing I'd say about that, Chris, is that just look around um, and excuse my um, detaining you with this humidity. But it is pretty oppressive in here today. But anyway, the, the, the thing I'd say about that is I don't really care how many cylinders an, a, a car has. Who cares? What I care about is its performance, okay? And I have no doubt that Toyota will not go backwards on performance with the replacement engine or engines for the 300 series when it gets out of the blocks next year sometime, okay? They won't do that but they almost certainly will come back from eight cylinders to six. So there'll be some sort of six, and I don't know. It might be, I probably could look at the latest speculation. It may be an inline six or it may be a V6. It's easier to package a V6. Inline sixes are arguably better from an engineering point of view because of their fundamentally great balance. Anyway, it'll be some sort of turbocharged V6 or inline six with better performance than the current V8. So from that point of view, it'll be indistinguishable. And then the challenge for Toyota, and I get the feeling they've slipped on this a little bit lately. Hopefully they will not slip on this in the 300 series. I'd like to see them get the reliability right out of the blocks. Very important for Land Cruiser, the flagship, okay? I don't want to see it have dusting issues. I don't want to see it have uh, DPF issues. I don't want to see it have any other kind of longevity or operational in-service issues. Toyota has uh, done that badly with the 2.8 diesel and the dusting issues on the current 200, in my view at least, and they've played the... Uh, They've played the game of fessing up to the 2.8 problem with the DPF. They played that badly, okay? They should have been more authentically honest with the market about that, in my view. So I hope they get those elements of their uh, behavior and R&D right with the 300, because I want to be able to say with the 300, it's awesome, dude, buy one. <laughs> because, you know, it's got the potential to be awesome, right? And whether it's a V8 or not, who gives a shit, okay? What I give a shit about is, does it go okay and is it going to be reliable, okay? Because Toyota's got such a fan base in Australia, particularly in the bush. Like, go to a country town, dude. All you see is Land Cruisers and commercial Land Cruisers and Land Cruiser Utes and Hiluxes and occasionally you see, you know, a Prado and a Fortuna and they're kind of, they're almost allowed into the club as an associate member. You know, but if you've got a Hilux, particularly with a steel tray or you've got a Land Cruiser 70 or a 200 that's tricked up, then you're allowed in. You don't even have to display your credentials, right? So uh, I just hope they get that right because we are such fans. Um, a TI says, I want to hear, he's, pay, he's just dropped five bucks on the chat, right? <laughs> he goes, I want to hear your yes with the laugh. I don't care if it's forced. Well, it's forced every time. <laughs> yes. It's the male equivalent of, you know, the 
that uh, that faking it that women can do so well. At least I've heard. Anyway, Sean Wright, what do you think about the new Defender? Well, I've done a couple of videos about that. Uh, what do you think about the new Defender? Will it sell in Oz or do you think it'll be as unreliable as the old one? Uh, almost certainly as unreliable as the old one. I think it's also a farce because one of the one of the key attributes, the core attributes of a Defender previously, is that it was good out of the blocks, right? Off-road. It had good off-road performance out of the blocks. Such incredible low-range gearing. Like, in the old Defender, and I owned an old Defender in the late 90s, okay? In the old Defender, you could actually engage low-range first on a flat off-road surface and then get out of the vehicle and overtake it walking. Okay, I did that a couple of times. So, you know, awesome low-range gearing and really good performance off-road. But even more importantly with the old Defender, you could enhance it by modifying it for even better off-road performance. And you could do that in so many ways. And I think the problem with the current one is that modifying it in any way is going to be intensely problematic. Like TFL's channel in North America, where they've, they've had this ongoing series of just incredible speed humps with not one but three defenders, okay? The dealership was trying to fit a winch for them, for their Defender project. They cut this wiring harness erroneously, and it's a part that can't be repaired or replaced. So what do you do in that situation if you decide to fit a winch to your Defender and you get the bits and you bolt it up and you cut the wiring harness? Your car cannot be fixed, and I don't know why. I don't know if that's because... It goes in inaccessible places that are full of, you know, gooey filler or something, or whether it's um, multiplexed and there's some kind of really high-tech cable, or I don't know why, but it's just a fail, in my view, to make a vehicle such as Defender, for example, which can't be fitted with, I think it's less than 18-inch wheels, maybe it's 17s, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's 18s, and if you can't fit smaller than 18-inch wheels, how are you ever going to fit big, fat, 37-inch off-road tyres? Like, that's going to be impossible, okay? And I get that there are bigger brakes. I get that. But you've got to think about the end user and what Defender represents in the context of uh, owners and also in the context of your current model lineup. And to me, Defender is much more like a discovery variant in its current guise than it is emblematically like a, what a defender has represented for so long and I say this as somebody who spent three years or something as a defender owner so if you are one of those people I feel your pain I feel the terrible steering lock and I I have had to back and fill on um, hairpin turns just around the corner here in Galston Gorge so uh I know what it's like to own a Defender. I know fundamentally what Defender represented, the previous one. And I just think the current one is misaligned with what that represents. So Adam Mansbridge now, one of the winners of the uh, Olight Mini giveaways, uh, the flashlights we gave away a few weeks ago. He says, I have a mate who bought... Uh, a cheap torch flashlight with absolutely terrible controls. The click gives rapid flash, then click changes it to highest, then to medium, then to barely lit. Yeah, look, I, you can buy a cheap anything. And if all you want is a cheap light to do whatever, then Olight is not for you, okay? You can buy a cheap multi-tool from Bunnings or the local hardware store. And if a cheap multi-tool 
is uh, is okay for you, then um, Leatherman is not. And there, look, there are some environments where tools get to be disposable, like a flashlight, you can throw it away, and a Leatherman-type thing, a multi-tool, whatever you want to call it, um, get to throw them away, right? And I just suggest that I'm not like that. I'd rather have these tools that last forever and they're, they're just pleasing to use because they're quality items. And if you ever really do need them and the chips are down, then they perform for you. And there's also something significant to be said for that because you don't want, if you drive around a corner in the middle of the night and you're in the boonies and there's no streetlights and there's a car crash and you need to provide assistance and you can't position your car in a location where the headlights can help because you've got to have it out somewhere uh, with the hazard lights on further back uh, to warn approaching traffic of your predicament or something, Christ knows what, you know, or whether the a car, I don't know, the, the victims have rolled down a friggin' hill and they're 200 metres away down a ravine. If you've got a cheap crap torch, okay, and when's it going to fail? It's going to fail then. It's not going to fail on a bright, sunny afternoon in the driveway at home. It's not even going to fail in the night in the driveway at home, walking down to collect, I don't know, the mail from the mailbox because you got home late. It's going to fail when you really need it. And I think in that case, you, you know, some people will decide to just buy quality products because they understand their true value when the chips are down. And I happen to be one of those people. So, And then you only have to buy once. You don't end up buying 30 torches over the course of your life. You probably buy, you know, two or three. So there's that. Anyway, uh, let's not talk about torches anymore. Uh, sheep trees now <laughs> says, do you think an automobile can be made that is elegantly simple like fine furniture like a classy lady or a steinway while still being seen as high-end not an iphone on wheels i'd suggest we're at the point where complexity is part of the deal okay there's 50 to 70 individual ecus like electronic control units someone always bails me up and says it's not engine control ecu it's just ecu for engine control unit it's actually 50 ish computers at different locations all around a modern car okay they're uh, multiplexed together in a wired network called a CAN bus controller area network bus they're networked and they talk to each other in very specific ways okay so I don't see that changing I don't see how it can the only thing that can be elegant and simple or horrible is the user interface and in this regard I think car makers could do a whole lot better and they could actually learn a whole lot more from Apple or Google whatever Android because the user experience on a Google phone or an, like an Android phone or an Apple phone is much better in my view than the user experience in the seat of most cars. They're unnecessarily complex and they're not instinctive and the touch sensitivity is awful and things of that nature. So I don't think you could ever have a car that is as elegantly simple as a nice dining table because when you look at the complexity of a dining table and the things that it does and you compare that to the complexity of a car and the things that it is required to do to fulfill its functionality, then the two can never meet, but they certainly can make the user experience much more elegant and instinctive. See, I want the key to my car to be my phone, and I when I want to walk to the, I want to walk to the car, 
and I want to I want the car to go. I know who that owner is. Um, I've got four owners. I want it to be like the dog, right? The friggin' dog knows which one of its family pack, whatever, is walking up the stairs. The dog knows, and the car can know by virtue of short range communication. Okay, and then I want the seat to be in my position, and I want the ambient lighting to be my color. And I want the audio to be set to my preferences. And I want Google Maps to be set to my preferences. And I want all that stuff just to happen seamlessly. And I want to get in the car and I want it to be my car instantly. I don't want it to be a car that I have to change to suit me because a previous owner has been in it. And I want more than that. I want the powertrain to be on my selection, sport mode, sport plus, whatever, you know, and that's not that hard except if you're a car maker, because, hey, they don't really do that, at least not in the affordable seats, not yet, and they can. Uh, let's keep going for a little bit longer. We've been going, geez, we've been going for an hour. Where's the time Where's the time got? Sean Wright now says, the military spec G-Wagon is probably the only elegant, simple vehicle left, but of course it is not available to the public. Yeah, that's true, but it's not simple. It's still complex under the hood, right? Because otherwise it wouldn't be made. Uh, old cars were much simpler. Like, you could stand in the engine bay. They had carburetors. There was no computers. Uh, and you could modify them in easy ways. You just got 12 volts off the battery and put a fuse in place and made whatever you want happen. You don't do that anymore. It's much more complex than that. Mil-spec G-Wagon, same thing. Um, Cars Tech Toys. Cars Tech and Toys says, I bought an Olight for two reasons. They make great products and I wanted to spite the people who called you out for selling out. Well, thank you, Cars, Tech and Toys. I appreciate that. Enjoy the kickback, however the hell you please. Thank you, I will. And I hope it serves you well because, you know, as as an engineer, I look at things, I look at products differently. I, I look at, I look at, I like flashlights, leather torches, Casio G-Shock watches, whatever, these things that I'm into. Like, I'm wearing a Timex at the moment. It's pretty good as well. Um, but... These sort of things that I'm into. Now, let me just cast around inelegantly. The mighty G-Shock. If I was going to go and, you know, take on the Taliban or something, you know, a Taliban incursion, then uh, as part of the coalition, then I'd probably wear a G-Shock because it's a tool for that job. And I, I marvel at what they can do with this watch. It's got a compass and a barometer and, you know, it's got all of this stuff built into it that I don't use all this often, but I marvel at the technology and they've been utterly reliable. This one is solar powered. I never have to charge it up. It's, it's friggin' awesome. And I've been unable to kill, uh, the Mudmaster in particular, which is this model, which I love right now. I bought an Omega Speedmaster professional okay, which is the moon watch. It's the watch that Buzz Aldrin wore. He was the first man to step onto the surface of the moon with a watch, and it was an Omega Speedmaster professional. Uh, Neil Armstrong's was left inside the lunar landing vessel because they used it. Uh, they had an equipment failure, and they had, to, they had to use his watch to time one of the burns, okay? So that's a backstory there. Otherwise, he would have been the first dude to wear a watch. And in, at that time, that watch passed the Omega Speedmaster Professional, plastic face, manual windy, uh, just told the time, had a tachymeter around the outside for velocity type observations. It was a pretty high tech watch and quite durable and it survived all of NASA's torture tests, you know, hitting it and burning it and all of that stuff. And um, so I bought it. A when I, the, I, I couldn't buy it when I graduated as an engineer 
right? Because I couldn't afford it. It was like three grand, which was an amazing amount of money to me back then. And by the time I, several years later, when I could afford one, I bought it because to me it represented something. It was one of those irrational, illogical purchases, right? To me, it represented the greatest engineering achievement of humanity, right? I'm awestruck by Apollo. I just am. I've read everything I can about Apollo. And I met one of the astronauts once, David Scott, the first man to uh, drive the lunar rover on the surface of the moon. And he blew me away. So, and I am quite emotional about it. So even today, it was such an honor to meet him. And so that's why I bought the Amiga Speedmaster Professional. And I still own it. And by every... By every objective measurable yardstick, this G-Shock shits all over it. And I wear a G-Shock all the time. And that's just because it's objectively superior. But I still have this emotional attachment to this notionally inferior watch because of what it represents to me. Okay, But products are funny things. And often you can be moved by what they mean to you as opposed, by, as opposed to what they do for you. Because this does for me much more than my... Uh, Speedmaster ever would, and yet I'd be gobsmacked. I'd, I'd be devastated if uh, if I lost my Speedmaster. But if this broke tomorrow, I'd just buy a new one, and it would be um, emotionally insignificant. And I'd use it all the time, and I'd still have faith in it because I've abused the crap out of this one. And it's uh, and it's brethren in my stable of Mudmaster watches. I, I've got three or four, and. The, you know, it wouldn't worry me at all if this one broke because it'd be me breaking it and I'd deserve that. But products are just funny things. And when you're an engineer and you look at products, you appreciate the, t the inherent toughness built into that. You appreciate the fact that so much versatility and elegance is built into that. And I, I still don't know how the dudes at Leatherman put such good designs together because that just feels right. You know, it's perfect. And they've spent so much time doing it. And many of the people who use the product probably never go on to speculate about the number of prototypes and the amount of thought that's gone into making this positive click sound and feel just perfect, you know, and hashtag respect. And the same with the Olight flashlights, right? Like the way they make them waterproof and the way they make this battery connector work is just fantastic. And that's why I've got respect for them. So anyway, let us keep going briefly here. Pixter UK says, it really frustrates me that someone making a buck because they have positioned themselves well gets called a sellout. Keep doing, uh, keep doing you, which I have no doubt is what you intend. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Pixter. I, I will do that. But there's a fundamental difference between promoting something you believe in and selling out. And you can even promote something you don't believe in. That's fine. As long as you do it authentically. Like as a host on Radio 2UE, we would uh, go to ad breaks and, you know, I'd have to load up the ad breaks and I'd see them come in. And basically, basically I'd look at the, the ad breaks and go, you know what? I don't have any position at all on this product, but I'm. we'd have a live read, in other words, and I'd have to read this uh, this live read and then... You know, I, I didn't have a view on the product at all. I was just required to read those words in that time. So I did that and there you go, okay? But the, the time you're a sellout is when you're promoting something as if you believe in it, only for money. And that does suck. It's uh, a fundamental misrepresentation of your authenticity to the audience. And in my view, you only get to do that once. So 
cars, tech, and toys says uh, scratch. <laughs> says scratch that. I demand you use the kickback and this five buck donation on a beer. Well, you know, approved <laughs> cars, tech, and toys. You can uh, you can count on that, mate. I will do. So look, I think that's about all we've got time for here, and that's probably a good place to leave it because. One of the best things, in my view, about this platform, YouTube, and particularly the live platform is you know that I'm not reading a script, right? Like if I'm sitting just over here, I can write a script and read the prompter. And I can read the prompter so that most of you would never know that I'm reading a script. Like when you've had 20,000 friggin' goes at it, you'd want to be able to do that. Okay. So I could fake it if I wanted to reading the prompter. I could tell you up was down and I'd probably get away with making it sound authentic you know it, it would be an insult to your intelligence certainly because up's not down the facts disagree but in terms of the presentation I could I could sell it to you I guess if I wanted to but you only get to do that once that's the kind of sale you only get to make once and when you when you do sell yourself out to the audience then how do they ever know that what you're saying about a product you recommend is true they can they can believe, I guess, what you're saying about a product when you say something's a negative. But the other way you can tell, I guess, is this, all right? I've got, um, I've got a couple of criticisms of Olight, all right? One of them, and one of them that, which I just mentioned, is that this is a laser-type beam. And it's, it's not the ideal tool in the shed if you just want to poke it down the hallway and see who's just invaded your home or see what the noise in the backyard is that you haven't expected, but it's dragged you out of sleep at 1am, right? Because it's such a pencil beam, you want a bigger spread than that because it's, it's, it's more suitable for that operation, right? And the other thing is the, uh, the, the clip, the pocket clip is, I don't know why this has got a pocket clip, you wouldn't carry this in a pocket, it's too bulky, right? Some pocket clips on the Warrior Mini, I criticised it for being irreversible. The M2R Pro solves that problem, and they sent me an M2R Pro because it solves that problem, because they saw my criticism. The thing about criticism in car reviews or other reviews, right? And, and while we're on it, so you know I haven't sold out to Leatherman, okay? Some Leathermans have blades, and this is one of them, it's got, I'm a left-hander, okay? I'm one of the 10% of the population for whom everything is reversed. For example, if I use that drill press, if I use a lathe, okay? The motor, fine motor control controls on lathes, drill presses, milling machines, all of that thing, they're on the right-hand side. Uh, if you use a power saw like a, a track saw or a, a, a portable circular saw, if you use a drop saw, if you use a power planer, the they're right-handed tools, okay? And you only under... Scissors are friggin' right-handed. Try using a left-handed pair of... Get, if you're right-handed and you want to feel my pain, get a pair of left-handed scissors and try and use them. And that's how it's been for me to use scissors for my entire frigging life. And 10% of the population are just like me, okay? So I can tell you unequivocally that on this serrated part of the blade, which doesn't have... It's only got a bevel on one side. It's only beveled this way. Whereas the straight part of the blade, which I don't know if you can see all that well there, but the straight part of the blade, which is roughly half the blade, is evenly beveled like this at something like uh, 17 to 20 degrees, which would be the conventional cutting angle for a knife, right? This bevel is only one way, and it's right-handed. So it's really difficult to use this part of the blade. It's not ideal. It's not really difficult. It's not like being a detainee in 
Guantanamo Bay, that'd be really difficult. This is just inconvenient, all right? But it's inconvenient for 10% of the population. And I've always had a shot at Leatherman for some of their knives being beveled on the right-handed side only and not, and they don't even do a left-hand conversion kit to my knowledge. And that's guaranteed to piss off 10% of the population. And yet, despite this, I am a fan of Leatherman tools because of their overarching good design and fantastic support. So there's that to consider as well. So if you want to put being a sellout into perspective, it's not recommending something you believe in. It's not even recommending something you believe in because you're going to make money out of that recommendation, possibly. It's misrepresenting your belief in a product or thing. Okay, that's that's reprehensible in my view. That does make you a sellout. And uh, I'm not going to set foot in that camp. And with that, at uh, quarter to four in the afternoon on Wednesday, the 16th, nine sleeps until it's nine, might be eight. And I'd have to work that out. And my brain is currently mush. But anyway, it's a short number of sleeps, slightly more than a week (laughs) until the big guy comes down the chimney and I will come to you before then and inflict myself upon you live. I promise between now and then, and there'll be pre-recorded, um, segments as well. Jason Sexton in at the last minute says, great show, John, go to Fat Cave 2.0. Well, I've been negotiating about Fat Cave 2.0. I I have purchased Fat Cave 2.0. There will be a tenant in Fat Cave 2.0 as part of the carryover lease until the 1st of July. So I'm counting the number of days until I can get in there. And of course, then it'll be a billion hours work turning it into a proper Fat Cave and not just a misrepresentation, but to everyone who has, uh, to all of you who have participated in the live stream, I'm sorry if I didn't get to your question. Maybe next time I do appreciate your participation and I really do. Uh, Ray Johnson says, for five bucks, he says, which TV network would you choose to be on, Sky News or the ABC? If you're in the UK, Sky News is a different thing there. Sky News is basically the ultimate Rupert Murdoch right-wing network, and the ABC does tend to swing a fair way to the left, okay? So if I had to be on one of those two, it'd have to be the ABC. And in fact, uh, rarely rarely now do I give uh, interviews on radio or television, but certainly not on TV because I haven't got much faith in TV generally, but uh, on radio I give the odd uh, ABC interview and... My my default position on radio and television is I'd rather be dead than go back to that because this platform allows me to tell you exactly what I think without filtration and without fear of being dragged into a conflict between the publisher and an advertiser who hates what I've just said. And the there are rules when you go live on YouTube or when you pre- uh, present content on YouTube. Generally, you can't just do anything. You can't uh, intentionally be hateful. You can't be uh, over-the-top profane in some ways. You can't, um, you can't attack vulnerable groups. You know, there are other laws, uh, there are other policies at YouTube as well. You know, you can read them. They're called community guidelines, right? But as for the freedom of speech, YouTube is not perfect, therefore. But they're remarkably better than any other platform I've ever encountered. And I I get the feeling that if you investigated YouTube, you could find times when they've done the wrong thing by creators. But, you know, there's 
millions of creators and billions of videos and no system is perfect but I, uh, I have a great deal of faith in this product and I have a great deal of faith in you as well because you've chosen to be part of this audience and this live stream has gone for, God, longer than I expected, uh, like an hour and 48 minutes and yet many of you have uh, stuck with me. I can see on the screen that there have already been uh, 3,515 playbacks and 345 of you have been involved in the peak number of concurrent views you know and the average watch time at sort of between 2 30 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the eastern seaboard of sydney as of australia has been um six minutes so you that's incredible like on sunrise for example breakfast television you're flat out finding a segment that goes for longer than two minutes two and a half on on news, on network nightly news, on 7 or 9, you'd be flat out finding a segment that goes for longer than 90 seconds, right? Like, peace in the Middle East, details next. Got to have it wrapped up in 90 seconds. It's just amazing. It's an insult to your intelligence to present important things in this way because not everything can be distilled to 90 seconds or two and a half minutes. Most issues are deeply nuanced and it requires a, a longer time period than that, even if very efficiently conveyed. And I don't claim to be the best at efficient conveyance, not by a long shot, but deeply nuanced issues require time and they require diligence on the part of the presenter and also diligence on the part of you in the audience, right? And it gives me significant encouragement to know that there are people like you out there listening to podcasts like this and other far more famous podcasts, Sam Harris and people like that, Jordan Peterson, you know, the Joe Rogan experience, people who are unafraid to look at challenging issues and debate them with the, with the time and the depth and the expertise that these issues are due. So with that, I will say thank you very much and I will come to you live before uh, Christmas and uh, there'll be other pre-recorded packages in the meantime as well. But the main thing I want to do is thank you for your participation either now during the live stream or subsequently listening to the pre-recorded version. Have a good whatever remaining portion of the day there is for you and I will talk to you soon. Thanks a lot.